God's Old Testament covenant people? Are they not his chosen people? And so we have to tackle uh, the subject of Israel. Now, I, I've told you guys in previous weeks, this is actually really at the heart of what was going on in Rome and one of the things that Paul was writing to discuss because Claudius had kicked all of the Jews out of Rome and the, and the church that had started out as a Jewish church in Rome had become an entirely Gentile church. And then the Roman Empire, because the economy went with the Jews, invited them back. And now this church was blending back together and they were struggling. The, the believers were, were struggling with anti-Semitic attitudes, replacement theology, and some of these sorts of things. And so it's interesting here that when we, when we consider Israel being mentioned in the New Testament, I'll tell you this, it always has an ethnic meaning. It's always a, a reference every single time to the Jewish people. That's what the New Testament writers are referring to. Too many Christians dismiss Israel. That's what I would tell you. They dismiss the Jewish people. They think the church is the new Israel. That's often, that's called replacement theology. And it's, it's very popular. Have you ever heard of that? To say the church is the new Israel. And so here's what I'll tell you about that suggestion. You won't find that in your Bible. Your Bible does not say the church is the new Israel. It doesn't say that. You won't find it. They are still God's people. He is still their God. And so that means this. We have to tackle the truths of what Paul's been telling us, Romans 1 through 8, and we have to figure out how it works with Israel. So think about this. this and here's why this question matters for us, okay? This is why this is important. What does it mean? What would it mean for us if God turned from his relationship to Israel? You know, what would it say about God what would it say about Jesus, the Jewish Messiah? What does it say about you and your relationship with God if God has turned away from Israel? Then are we secure? Is God's love secure? Is there stuff that could separate us from the love of God? I mean, if God cannot bring an ancient people whom he chose to the place of salvation... Can he really bring you to the place of salvation? That's why this question matters. It has to be tackled. We have to think about it. And the reality is, is this. God's not done with Israel. There's a reason why 14 million people, they're 0.1%, 0.1% of the world's population dominate our news. Like, think about it. It's like, why, why is that? 14 million Jews maybe a little bit more than half of them live in the land of Israel. They only have about a quarter of the land God promised to them. And, and, and what we need to see from the word of God is that God is not done with them. And God has a, has a lot to do yet with Israel that he has promised to do. And it's going to take some time, but he is going to do it. And he wants to use his church in the midst of that. And so when the New Testament speaks of Israel, we'll say this. It is always a reference to the Jewish people. Never applied to the church. And so what we'll find out in these next three chapters is that the church has been grafted into the tree that is called Israel. And so the first thing we have to understand regarding Israel has to do with their past. Paul's going to talk about their past, their present, and their future. This morning we're going to talk about 
about Israel past. Israel was selected. They were elected. They were chosen by God to be his people. And so in regards to that, Paul begins as he starts this conversation now about Israel, and he begins to share his own personal sorrow. You can throw that outline up on the, up on the screen there. He's going to begin to just share his own personal anguish. Check it out with me. Verse 1, it says this. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now it's interesting because if we think about Romans 8, here's Paul. He's t he begins to speak about the anguish of his heart. And here he's just finished proclaiming to us the greatness of God's love. Chapter 8's amazing because it, it, it drives home the fact that if God is for us, who can be against us? It drives it home that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, Romans chapter 8 drives home that, that we have uh, received and become the residing place of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 drives it home that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to God's purpose. Romans 8 drives it home that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so for Paul, that, that's what he's proclaimed, but there was something in, for him in his own heart that took him from the mountaintops of those truths, the mountaintops of those theological realities to the valley of anguish and sorrow in his life. And it was this, from the magnificent, magnificent splendor and glory of knowing Jesus' work of salvation to the rock-bottom depths of sorrow and trouble, it was when he considered what seemed to be a people separated from the love of God. Specifically, he was thinking about his own nation and their rejection of Jesus, the unbelieving people of Israel. He says in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now to me, that is an unbelievable statement, what Paul just said. You know, Moses said the same thing. You remember in the Old Testament, when God said, Moses, I'm going to destroy those Israelites. Moses said, God, you cut me off, but save them. And Paul says the same thing here. He repeats that. He's saying, boy, Lord, and I can't comprehend this. I have to say, you know, I love all you guys, love our friendships, but I... To say, God cut me off so that others can be saved? That's what Paul is saying. Lord, I'm willing to spend an attorney separated from you if that is necessary for the salvation of my people. And so we see here, Paul, like, like what a heart for people. What a heart for the lost. What a passion for souls. It's no wonder this guy suffered for the gospel the way that he did. He had a passion for the lost, and God grant us such a heart for the lost. And so of Israel, Paul says this in verse 4. He begins to speak of the advantages that belong to them. He says this, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. So Paul just begins, as he's speaking of his sorrow, he begins to speak of the privileges 
that the Jewish people have been given. He says this, they're the adopted children of God. You know the story, God called Abraham because Abraham responded in, in faith to God's call. The, the Lord promised that he would take Abraham's descendants and he would bless them and that he would turn them into a nation of peoples, the adopted sons and daughters of God. Paul says theirs is the glory. The glory speaks of God's presence. And God was present in the midst of the people of Israel. He made Jerusalem his throne. The temple, the, the dwelling place for his, his glory, they came and they worshiped the Lord there. They experienced the reality of his presence. The glory of God was in the midst of the nation. Paul says this, to them belong the covenants. I mean, you think about it. God made a covenant with Abraham. God gave the covenant of the law to Moses. God made a covenant with David for kingship. A promise that the Messiah would descend through his line. Levi was given the covenant of the priesthood. A system of worship was given to them. A, te- uh, a simple uh, uh, a system of worship that was unique to the Hebrew people by which they could draw near to God. Even the new covenant was given to the Jewish people. Jeremiah prophesied that the new covenant would be made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And when Jesus died, the night night before he died on the cross, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. He was referencing back to the covenant promise that was given to Jeremiah. It was for the Jewish people first. We have to remember that when we think of the, the new covenant. Even the new covenant was for the Jewish people first. Paul says, how about this advantage? They've been given the law. Or this advantage, they have the temple and the worship and all of that system. He says, they also have the advantage that that they were given the promises of God. Promises about their land, promises about their protection. He says, Israel can claim the patriarchs as their own. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jews. And, Paul says, through the line of those great patriarchs, we can trace the human ancestry of Jesus. Verse 5 is just this great verse that actually points out both the divine and the human nature of our Savior. Jesus is God over all. And he's of Jewish descent. That's that's the climax, you know, of, of their advantage. They gave us Jesus. The Jewish people gave us Jesus. And so what a legacy the nation of Israel has. A legacy from the Lord. And, and, and generally speaking, when we talk about Paul's time and from there on on, from, from the time of Jesus on into our day, generally speaking, they have been an unbelieving people in regards to the true identity of Jesus. It wasn't the case for all of them. We know Jesus chose 12, 12 men. They became the foundation of the church, the, the apostles. They, and those, they did not fail him. Jews who went about the work of the kingdom. And there was many others that served him. But generally speaking, the nation has been unbelieving regarding the true identity of Jesus. And so Paul just shares this sorrow. Man, I want my people to be saved. I want them to see who Jesus is. And as he talks about this, he begins to change the subject here and he comes to the topic of God's 
sovereignty. That is to say this, that God is a sovereign king and he has the right to make the choices that he makes and use whomever he wants to use. Now here's the thing about God's sovereignty as we come to this conversation about that. God doesn't choose uh, according to human ideas. And the example that Paul is going to give us is with two sets of brothers, Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau. And in human thinking, you would expect that as was the pattern, God would choose Abraham's oldest son, and then he would choose Isaac's oldest son, and they would be the line of the Messiah and the passing on of the covenant. But in both cases, God chose uh, the younger. He chose, didn't choose Abraham's oldest son, but he chose the younger Isaac. Well, then you would expect maybe with Isaac's sons that God would choose the oldest, but he didn't. God chose the youngest. And in both cases, God did not follow that which was the normal routine of their culture, the choosing of the eldest, but he deliberately chose the younger. And what we're going to see is this, is that God has liberty. God has freedom. God has the right to choose whomever he wants. Now, just as we begin to dive into this conversation about the sovereignty of God, it's very important that, that we understand the emphasis of what Paul is talking about here. Because the emphasis that Paul is placing on God's choice has not to do with salvation. And I think that, that we place way too much weight upon this text when we talk about you know, election and predestination and laying these things upon the topic of salvation. So catch this. God was not choosing them for salvation. He was choosing them for service. God was not choosing them for salvation. He was choosing them for service. And like I said, too much is made of this text. And the, and the fact that salvation is a matter entirely for God to choose whom he wants to save. That is not what Paul is talking about here. He's saying that God has the liberty to choose whom he wants to serve his purpose as he sees fit. That's what Paul's talking about. And that's at the real heart of this conversation about election in this passage. The Lord chose the Jewish people for a purpose. He wanted them to reach the whole world. He said, you're to be a light to the nations. Jesus came in, in human form with a purpose. Think about it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That verse tells us that God desires and wants, his purpose is to reach the entire world. And in his purposes, he sent Jesus. But before he sent Jesus, in his purposes, he chose one group of people, one nation, one culture group, whose active service to him was to give a revelation of God to the rest of the world. Did they fulfill his purpose? I would tell you, yes, they did. You know, and I'll explain that again in a second, but maybe before we even ask that, it's why would God choose the Jews? Why did he choose them? Well, I don't know, but he chose them. They, they are the channel of, 
of God's revelation of himself to the world through whom Jesus, the Lord sent the Messiah. Think about it. If you want to learn anything about God, you have to pick up a book that is a Jewish book. If you want to learn anything about God, you have to understand Jewish worship and Jewish law. If you want to know about uh, God, you have to bow the knee of your heart to a Jewish Messiah. They fulfill God's purpose. You know, I tell you this, <laughs> I always like this line, and you like it too. My best friend is a Jew. You know who I'm talking about. Jesus. And so th that was their, their calling and their purpose. Remember the truths of Romans chapter 8? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No separation from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so if you think about Israel, it looks like, well, maybe God made a mistake. It looks like, well, maybe he made the wrong choice. Look at generally speaking, a lot of them are living in rebellion to him. And those who believe God made a mistake think that the church has replaced Israel. But that's not true. Because here's why. God does not make mistakes. God's promises do not, will not, cannot fail. They can't. His covenants cannot drop to the ground. He's God. And so to reconcile the appearance of what might be a mistake or them missing it with the truth, Paul tells us uh, we have an explanation. And the explanation is this, as we're going to see. Not all the sons of Jacob are Israel. God chose the Jews to be his channel of revelation to the world and there have, there have been some Jews who were faithful to that. There, is, there has always been a remnant and there has been those who are not faithful to that. Check out verse six. Paul says this. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So when you consider the Jewish people and the fact that they could be so painfully unaware of their spiritual condition, especially concerning the great benefits that they, that they received uh, from, from the Lord, you have to wonder, well, how did they miss the boat? You know, it's like missing BC ferries. It's like, you knew. You knew the cutoff was 10 minutes beforehand. You missed the boat. And it's like the same thing. It's like, how, how did they miss the boat? How did they miss out on Jesus? How could they have had all of those benefits and yet it result for some of them in rejection? And so Paul says, did God's word fail? Did the promises of God fail the people of Israel? And we need to understand this because, because if God's word failed them, couldn't it also fail us? Us? But God's word did not fail, Paul says. The name Israel, actually, when we talk about the name Israel, the name Israel has a number of meanings. And one of that's a name that God gave to Jacob. One of the meanings of the name Israel is this, strives with God or wrestles with God. One who wrestles with God. Remember, Jacob wrestled with God, but in the wrestling match, the Lord transformed him and touched his life and said, you'll no longer be Jacob, you will be called Israel. And that change of name reflected the change of the man as he wrestled with God. And that name Israel, as it, as it means wrestled with God, rest, one who strives with God, it also means this, 
governed by God, ruled by God. So did God's word fail Israel? No, because Paul tells us that not all who are called Israel are governed by God. No one, no one is truly Israel unless they are governed by God. And many of them might not have been faithful to God's purpose for them, but some of them were. And it is though, though, it is though that those that are faithful, um, so I'm getting my tongue tied up here. I'm going to read you rest what I wrote. It is through those that are faithful that God's choice of the Jews is justified and his purpose is fulfilled. It wasn't every Jew. It wasn't always the eldest of the family. It was whoever God made a choice to choose. And he always had a remnant. Look at verse 7. Paul tells us, it's not everyone. Not everyone that is called Israel is Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. God had promised Abraham that his descendants would be as, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore if it could be counted. But you know the story. Abraham's wife Sarah was barren. And so Sarah gave her servant girl Hagar to Abraham and Hagar conceived a child and when that boy was born he was named Ishmael but when but God had promised a son through Sarah and so 13 years after Ishmael was born Sarah gave birth to Isaac and Isaac was the son that the Lord had promised to Abraham Ishmael represented the, the man of the flesh, Isaac represented the son of promise or the man of the spirit. And so for Abraham, it, it, it felt like this. It felt like God had given him this promise and God was so long in fulfilling his promise of a son that he made an attempt to help God. God wanted him to wait until he fulfilled the promise. But, and, and, but Abraham went ahead of God and tried to do his own thing. And God does not Bless works of the flesh. In, in fact, from the story of Abraham and the birth of his sons, there's this lesson. It's this. Be patient and wait for the Lord. You know, when he gives you a promise, you, you, you wait for him. And I speak that to myself because I'm like always trying to push ahead of the Lord just like you. And there's times when we just need to be prayerful and wait. And so look at verse 8. It says this. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So Ishmael was just as much a son of Abraham as Isaac was, but one was a son of the flesh and one was the son of promise. One was the heir to God's promised covenant and the other wasn't. And it's interesting that God chose the younger. You see that in the account of Isaac's boys too. Look at verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So, so Ishmael and, and Isaac had the same father, but they had different mothers, Hagar and, and uh, Sarah. But Rebekah's children... 
Esau and Jacob had the same father and they had the same mother. They were twins. And based on the right of the firstborn, the Lord should have chosen in this second account, just like he should have chosen Ishmael by the right of the firstborn, God should have also chosen Esau. He came out first. He was the firstborn of the twin brothers. But just like Ishmael was the result of a fleshly man-driven work, so, so Esau, we see in scripture, was a man of the flesh. Look at verse 11. Though they were not yet born or had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Rebecca, when she got these two babies in her womb, and they were wrestling in the womb. The scripture tells us, it was like, and she's like, Lord. She went before the Lord. She said, Lord, what is going on inside my belly? And the Lord told her, there's two nations inside of you. And the younger, the older is going to serve the younger. And God, God chose Jacob before these twins were ever born. Now we read about Esau. Esau's kind of the man's man, right? His name, his name means hairy. It's kind of a terrible name, really. I mean, today, if Esau was here, we'd call, him, we'd call him Harry, not Esau. And he was this big, you know, you get this sense that he, was a, that he was a man's man. Kind of burly and strong and into outdoor sorts of things. And Esau hunted and he worked the land. And the scripture tells us that his father loved him. Jacob, on the other side, is, from the biblical account, seems like less of a man's man when I read his story. You know, he's kind of, seems more frail and his name can actually be translated we know that we often call Jacob deceiver maybe but his name can be translated heel catcher because when he was born he came out of the womb clinging onto Esau's heel that's what the Bible tells us and and that's why I guess he was given that name he was grasping Esau's heel but just as God made a distinction between Ishmael and Isaac God made a distinction between Esau and Jacob and Jacob, even though he was the younger, became the heir of Abraham's promise. And through Jacob's line came the Messiah, Jesus. And Esau was rejected. And, and the prophets actually prophesied that the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, would be, they, they would be cut off and they would disappear as a nation. And that's true. I mean, when's the last time you met an Edomite? Nation doesn't exist. They've been cut off. And the Lord said this, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now that's crazy to me. You know, why, why would God do that? It's tough to understand. It's tough to understand that before they were ever born, God accepted one and he rejected the other. Why? Well, Paul tells us it's so that God's purpose in election might stand. That, that salvation is not the result of our works, but a result of God's grace. And you read the story of, of Jacob, and I always think about Jacob whenever I'm reading Genesis. I'm like, there's not really anything appealing about this guy. He's like mama's boy, hanging to his mama's skirt while his brother's like the man's man out hunting. At least for guys, okay, ladies? I gotta say that. And, and, but the interesting thing is this, is that Jacob was interested in spiritual things. But Esau was not. 
Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. And, and knowing Jacob, you know, I bet Jacob watered down the bowl of soup. That was just, you know, the way he rolled. And there are f- a lot of factors in the story of Esau and Jacob. You know, God knew which son would be spiritual and which would be fleshly. God knew that Esau would despise his birthright. Esau was a man, he he was a man when he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. You think about that. We read that really lightly. Did Esau know about God's covenant with Abraham? Of course he did. Did Esau know that his father was the heir to that covenant? Of course Esau knew that. Did he know that on the basis of birthright, he was next in line to be the heir? Yes, he knew that. Did he know that the Lord had told his mother that, the, that he, the older, would serve the younger while they were still in the womb? Yeah, he probably knew that. And in spite of all of that information, he made a choice to reject God, to hate the things of God. Don't, don't, don't think too lightly about Esau when you read the word of God. In spite of all of the information that he had, Esau put no value on spiritual things. Birthright, bowl of soup. That was Esau. For a cheap bowl of soup, he showed contempt for the things of God. Esau didn't want God. You have to understand that in that story. Esau did not want God, and God rejected him. And then there's Jacob. You know, nothing special about that guy. He was a weasel, I always think. And, and like I said, hanging on to his mom's skirt. But God chose him. And one of the things that you see about Jacob is that Jacob wanted God. He wanted God. It's hard things to understand. You know, Spurgeon was once asked this. A woman came to him and said this. She said, I, ca- I can't understand why God should say that he hated Esau. And Spurgeon said this, that's not my difficulty, ma'am. My trouble is understanding how he could love Jacob. And it's true. It's like, how could God reject one? Well, how could he love this one? I mean, it's like. And the point Paul wants to make is this, is that it's God's right to choose. It's, It's the height of human arrogance and disrespect and impudence for the clay to say to the potter, what are you doing? You don't know what you're doing. What are you doing? God has the right to choose. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul says, by no means. He's the sovereign God. He has rights. You know, sometimes we we, we love rights. We love our, our rights as Canadians. Sometimes we're so busy talking about our rights that we forget God is sovereign and God has rights. He has rights. I think his rights, you know, usurp my rights. Uh, As our maker, he has rights over us. He chooses whom he wants to choose. And if you look around the room, I mean, you know, I'd hate to insult you this morning, but God doesn't choose a lot of the top people. (laughs) I'm talking about the person next to you, not, not you. You know, most of the people that God chooses, the world won't choose. You know that. The scripture said God chooses the weak things of this world to shame the wise. The foolish things of this world. You know, I can't even grow hair on top of my head anymore. 
And God chose us. He chose us. He chose you, and he wants to use you, and that's, that's amazing. And God loves to take a nobody. He loves to take a nobody and turn them into a somebody. You know why? Because then he gets the glory. He gets the glory. I mean, if you're great, if you're so awesome, then you get the glory. But God wants the glory. And so he chooses the weak and foolish things of this world so that he can get all the glory. That's his right. That's his right. And this is really where we come to, come to the heart of this matter in regards to election. And it's this, is that, that God has reasons for the decisions that he makes. Just like you have reasons for the decisions that, that you make, God has reasons for his choices, and he has reasons for choosing some for mercy and some for justice. Look at verse 15. He gives us an example. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Moses is an example of God's choice of mercy. A baby that was meant to be destroyed at birth. And God put mercy upon Moses. And Moses, you, you know the story of the basket and the Nile and being found by Pharaoh's daughter and rising to the height of power in Egypt and Pharaoh's household. Moses is an example of God's choice of mercy. And mercy, what you need to know about mercy, mercy is not your right. Mercy is not a right. When, you know, you don't give mercy... When, when you don't give mercy to an offender or a criminal, there, there's nothing unfair about that. What, what does a criminal deserve? Justice. That's what we call it, right? It's, your right is justice, and that's everyone else's right around your offense and your criminal behavior. And the reality is this, is that God is not obligated to us. And if he were obligated, if God were obligated to show you mercy, then mercy wouldn't be mercy. It would be your right. It would be an obligation. And when we think about God and his mercy towards you, if you think, you know, you think, wow, God, sometimes I'm blown away by your mercy in my life. You know, it's a dangerous thing to think when, when we regard God's mercy towards us as a right. I deserve it, Lord. <laughs> I'll give you what you deserve. <laughs> You've used that line probably as a parent, maybe. I don't know. Mercy is not a right. Mercy is a gift. And so Paul says in verse 16, as he points us to Moses as the example, he says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He's saying this, you can't earn it. You can't effort your way into it. It's not about your desire. God's choice hinges on his own mercy. And in regards to that, we then have a responsibility to respond when he chooses to give us mercy. Pharaoh's an example of that. That's where Paul takes the car. Pharaoh's an example of a man who had the opportunity to respond to God's working and he refused. Look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. It's interesting that in the story of Pharaoh, when you go to the Exodus account, you will read 20 times in that account that the scripture tells us Pharaoh's heart was hardened. What's interesting in that is it says 10 times Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and 10 times it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh, when you think about it, saw all the same miracles as the children of Israel. Pharaoh had many, many opportunities to repent in the Lord and believe. If God wasn't giving Pharaoh and the Egyptians a chance to believe, then I would say this. Why didn't he send 10 plagues? Why, why did he send 10 plagues? Were 10 just for the Israelites? Were they not also for the Egyptians? Really, when you think about it, if it was just to get Israel out, well, then only one plague was needed. That's it. Just send the Passover right now. Boom, done. God was giving opportunity. God was being patient. God is long-suffering. His, his word tells us he is not willing that anyone should perish. And when, when God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he was just confirming the decision that Pharaoh had already made in his own heart. And so Pharaoh is an example to us of God's choice of judgment. But here's, here's the point in regards to Pharaoh that's so important. God demonstrated great patience with Pharaoh before he firmed it up. And God is patient with people. Patience to, patient to see which way they are choosing. And then he steps in and, and he helps them go the way that they have chosen. He was patient with Pharaoh. He waited. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And, and it seems to me when I read it that God said, okay, if that's what you're choosing, then I'll just harden you a little further. See, there's always a reason for God's choice. There's always a reason for the choices God makes. It's not a lottery. <laughs> it's not like arbitrary. There's purpose. It, some people suggest, they actually theologically suggest that salvation is like totally arbitrary. And, and God chooses one for heaven and one for hell. And to me, that just paints salvation to be like the biggest lottery ever. It's like, oh, oh, it's a lottery. Oh, okay, no wonder we do this. Better, I guess I better go get my 649 ticket. And we turn salvation into nothing but sheer luck to be chosen. And to me, that makes no sense. That makes no sense. You have to wonder if God raised up Pharaoh and then hardened him to demonstrate his miracles to the Israelites, you know, maybe what choice does anyone have? But I don't think that's the case. You know what? When I read that, I think Pharaoh could have partnered with God. Pharaoh could have partnered with God. He said, okay, God, I see what you're doing. I soften my heart to you. You, you, you want to use my life for a purpose? I will partner with that purpose. I won't resist that purpose. And I believe Pharaoh could have partnered with God. God had a purpose for him. And he could have participated willingly or he could resist. And either way, God said this, my purpose will be accomplished through you, Pharaoh, because that's why I raised you up. Partner with me or don't. And to me, that's a great warning for us because God's got purpose for you and me. And it's like this partner with me or don't. 
Look at verse 19. You will say then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What Paul is saying is this. Is we don't get to say to God, why did you make me like this? Why, God, why did you make me like this? You know, if, if, if we did, we, when we ask that question, actually, what it's really showing is that we're, we're concerned about things that actually don't matter, you know. It's like our minds are on a, on a, f- a fleshly level. You know, God says, I, I take the clay and I make what I want. I'm the potter. And if I want to make a vase fit for the king's table, then that's what I'll make. And if I want to make an ashtray, you know, I'll make an ashtray. I don't know, what, whatever God wants to make. And, and with that in mind, the, the sovereignty of God really is is a terrifying thing in that sense. You know, it's like terrifying because God makes us for whatever purpose he wants to use us for. And it's only, I guess it's terrifying until you come to understand, though, that God loves you, that he loves you, that that he sent Jesus for you. And when you realize that, that God is love, then his sovereignty isn't a terrifying thing. It's like, okay, I don't need to be fearful of your sovereign plan, even if I'm an ashtray, even if I'm the king's vase. I don't have to be fearful. You, you have a purpose for me, and I want to partner with you in that purpose. You know, if God loved you enough to die for you, then you can say this, I trust you. Do with me whatever you wish in your sovereignty. You've made me for a purpose, God, and I want to join that purpose. And the reality is this, is that you, you will only discover the intent of the potter when you yield to him. You only discover his intent and his purpose and his plans when you begin to yield your life to him. That's why salvation surrender. I get off the throne, Jesus, and I invite you to come and be the Lord of my life. I surrender, Jesus. I want to discover the reason you made me. Look at verse 22. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patient vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Again, Pharaoh. The Lord had a lot of patience with Pharaoh. He put up with Pharaoh's hard-heartedness. He gave Pharaoh chance after chance showing and demonstrating his patience with a rebellious people and a rebellious ruler, ruler. And then God demonstrated how quickly his wrath can come. The scripture warns us about that all, all over the place. The wrath of God comes very quickly. It comes when you don't expect it. It's why Jesus said, he told the parable of the, of the virgins who needed to keep their tr- lamps trimmed and, and burning. And I would say this to you, if God, has been, if God has been speaking to you about something, if God has been giving you the opportunity to repent, and God has been wooing you like he tried to woo Pharaoh, you should take advantage of it. You should jump on that. That's why the scripture says today is the day of salvation. Salvation is not something that you should wait on when God is wooing you and calling you because you don't know when the wrath comes. 
You don't know when he says, okay, Pharaoh, enough, man, enough. What is it going to take? Then I'll harden your heart in the direction that you're going and I will deal with you and I will pour my wrath out upon you. Came across a, a quote that I really liked. Warren Wiersbe told this. It's another story of Spurgeon. Spurgeon is like, he's just gold for preachers. And a man asked Spurgeon this. He said this. Spurgeon, <laughs> Dr. Spurgeon, how, how do you reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility? And Spurgeon said this. You don't reconcile friends. You don't reconcile friends. And, and, and that, that's one of the things that, you're, that we should discover in this passage is that these things are not, when we talk about the sovereignty of God and the choice of man, they, they, are, they are not enemies. They are friends working together. They're friends. God, God is working on your heart to choose him in his sovereign power. He, he's a gentleman, but he is sovereign. And there is, there is a, an end to his patience. He's long-suffering, but he holds those things in tension. And it's not a problem for him. You know, it's always a problem for Christians. We're always like, oh, sovereignty, free will. Ah. No, they're friends. They're in relationship with one another. And so look at what Paul says in verse 23. He says, in order, I'll read 22. What if, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order, so here's the purpose, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. You know, I would say this. God wants to pour out his mercy upon your life. He is wanting to you, he was wanting to prepare you for the coming of glory in his presence. He wants you to know his love. He wants you to know his mercy. And God is offering to you his love and his mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. Ball's in your court. Will you respond to his love and his mercy? Or will you harden your heart to the work of God? It's, it's part of the reason God functioned this, this way. But, but Paul tells us there's another reason. We'll wrap up pretty quick here. There's another reason why what's going on with the Jewish people is going on. And he tells us in verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not, only the not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul says, here's the reason. God's promise is not dropped to the ground to the Jewish people. His covenants, none of it. But God's, God's reason for choosing them was always to reach all people, the Gentiles. God chose the Jews to be a light to the Gentiles. And, you know, I think probably he chose them for the same reason that he chose you and I. Because he goes, there's a weak thing from which I can get glory. There's 0.1% of the population there's a people that are slaves. I'm going to lay my hand upon them and I'm going to bring glory to my name. And if that's what God's wills, wills he, he's sovereign and who can oppose him? And, and, and Paul says this, this, we're going to see this, this hardening of their heart for this point in time is functioning so that the rest of the world has the opportunity to respond to the gospel. You know, if the Jews just welcome Jesus in as the Messiah right now, that's it. 
the wrath of God comes for the rest of people who don't know. But God is long-suffering. And because he's long-suffering, he's just hardening their heart for a season, for a time, so that he can bring the rest in. Verse 25. As indeed he says to Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And those who were not, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. You know, it's cool. When we think about us, followers of Jesus, uh, Gentiles, Christians, God has chosen us to be his church just as he sovereignly chose the people of Israel. He's called us for the same purpose, to be a light to the world, to go and to share the good news of Jesus. We'll wrap it up here. Verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand on, of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts, if the Lord of hosts had, had not left us offspring, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll just wrap up with this thought this morning. Man, God's promise to Israel has not failed because God always preserves and works with a remnant people. And the invitation was, was open to all of Israel and yet only a remnant responded to the message of God's grace made available through Jesus Christ. And that should serve as a warning to you and I. Right there. That's why Israel's past matters to us because God's word does not fall to the ground. He's patient. He's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish. He sent his son to save us. But there comes a conclusion to his patience when he pours out wrath. And when I, when I, think, when I think about this, this text, I guess there's just a, a few thoughts in conclusion that I would leave you with. As believers, number one, we should always have a heart for Jewish people. The gospel is to the Jew first. God's blessed you with Jewish people in your life. You be a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Your best friend's a Jew. The words of the Jewish people matter. Otherwise, you wouldn't know Jesus. The other thing I would say to, this, to you is this, is that no, God has a purpose for you. God has a purpose for you. Yield to him so that he can reveal his purpose. Respond to him. You know, like Paul, I would say this. Have a heart for the lost. Have a heart for those who don't know Jesus. Paul said, man, I'm sorrow in my life because family members don't know Jesus. Man, have a heart for the lost in your life. Pray for them. Seek God for them respond to God. That, that's, that's what this text is telling you. It's not that election is, a, oh, you're, it's like, okay, done. I don't have to worry about that. Guess I don't have to worry about anything. I've been elected by God. No election. Election serves to call you to the purposes of God. Will you partner with him or will you harden your heart against him? That's the question. Partner with him. Yield to him. Say, Jesus, I yield to you. Let's pray. Barbara, I invite you to come. Would you guys stand with me?
Lord, this morning, we just, uh, we just thank you for your word. You're an amazing, amazing God. Your purposes, they're so beyond this little mind of mine, Lord, beyond all of ours. And yet, God, what we desire is to partner with you. And Lord, we thank, I thank you, Lord, that you're patient with me. God, because I'm slow to learn. I just confess that to you. And so I thank you for your patience. And Lord, just this morning, all of us, we just say, Lord, from our hearts, we yield to you. You just say that in your heart to the Lord. Lord, I yield to your purposes. Lord, we want to know what you've called us for. We want to serve those purposes in our generation. God, we pray that in us you would find soft hearts. Lord, just come. Turn over the soil of our hearts right now. God, I can't change my heart. I can't change anyone else's heart. But Lord, you're the heart changer. You soften hearts. You're the God who takes heart, hearts of stone and you turn them into hearts of flesh. May you find here, Lord, individuals, a church together that has soft hearts before you. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, that God, if they've, they've been hearing invitations, maybe week after week, month after month, they sense you working, Lord I, I, Lord, I pray that, that, that they would not resist you, but that they would yield to you and say, Jesus, I invite you into my life. I'm inviting you. Just come have your way. I want to discover what you have for me. I thank you, Lord, that your plans are, your plans are good. You, you have plans to prosper us, to bless us, Lord. You, you have a hope and a future for those that are yielded to you. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that in Jesus there is great purpose for our lives. And we yield to that this morning, Jesus, in your name. Amen.